Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. I'm joined by Simon Elliott, as usual, the head of investment trust research at Winterfront Securities. And this week he's in Edinburgh, where he's been hosting a conference for uh, clients and fund managers in that great city. Simon, tell us where you are and uh, what's the mood you detect up there in Scotland? Well, it's, it's wonderful to be back in Scotland. I always think of it as being the uh, kind of home ground for investment trusts. Certainly organising an investment trust conference in Edinburgh is a bit like taking calls to Newcastle. But uh, it was a very well-received conference, I think, and certainly good to see some familiar faces and obviously clients again. And a reasonably upbeat mood in the room. Clearly, there are a number of issues, a few of which I'm sure we're going to go on and talk about in this podcast. But Overall, there seemed to be a reasonable degree of optimism about the state of markets and uh, life in general. Well, we know that the Scots, God bless them, have a reputation for being uh, cautious, shall we say, and so that's quite good news to hear that. Well, let's kick off and see whether they have any reason to be uh, optimistic, uh, given the way the markets have been moving this week. Well, it's been a tough week yet again uh, for the markets, despite that ripple of optimism. So in the first four days of the week, the investment company's sector was down 1.8%. That compared with a decline of 0.7% for the FTSE All Share, so i.e. the wider UK market. So in other words, investment companies underperformed. And in fact, in the first nine months of the year, that pattern has been borne out. So investment companies are in positive territory this year, up 8.6%. Uh, but they lag the wider UK market. So the FTSE all share up 12.8% over that period. But this week, markets have been choppy. We've seen the sector average discount widen out from probably about 2.8% to 3.2%. Lots of talk across the market about energy shortages, slowing global economic growth. Inflation uh, is a subject that is just simply not going away. And obviously, a lot of talk about supply chain bottlenecks as well. In addition to that, we have uh, the possibility of a government shutdown in the US, which always causes a little bit of angst. But uh, overall, choppy conditions as we enter October. Indeed, it has been like that. There's no question about that. But then the markets have been uh, consistently moving in upward directions, as we've commented on several times. So some kind of correction, whether it's uh, justified by external events or not, is has always been a possibility. And it wouldn't be a surprise to see this phase of weakness uh, continue a little bit, as far as I could say, anyway. But we don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Let's move back then to the investment trust sector and catch up with some corporate news, first of all. And we're going to kick off by a quick update on what's happening with the Custodian REIT Drum Income Plus REIT acquisition, which has been in the market for a little while now. Yeah, that's right. So this is just a bit of housekeeping, really. Um, And as you say, we've talked about this on a number of occasions previously. But essentially, the update this week came with regard to the date of the general meeting that will be held seeking approval for the merger from Drum Income Plus REITs shareholders. And that meeting is scheduled to be held on the 19th of October. Uh, And assuming that shareholder approval is forthcoming, the scheme is expected to become effective on or around the 3rd of November. So that will herald the end of Drum Income Plus REIT uh, and a merger in with Custodian REIT. Okay, and that presumably will retain the ticker of CREI, which is Custodian's Stock Market Ticker. Okay, so we can quickly move on to uh, third point investors, where, as we know, there's been an ongoing skirmish between this particular trust, which is managed by the hedge fund manager, Dan Loeb, and asset value investors, which is acting on a number of other shareholders' behalf as well as itself. So what's the, the latest turn in this particular saga? Well, asset value investors have published another open letter to the directors of third point investors. Basically, you'll remember that they've had two previous attempts to uh, effectively requisition the board and have a general meeting. The the board of third point have rebuffed them on both occasions and asset value investors, AVI, they've taken legal advice and then based on that legal counsel, they suggest that the board is mistaken in rejecting its requisition in August. And so they're saying, really, you ought to go and have a look at this again. So really, we're seeing a battle between lawyers really in interpretation. Uh, quite how it ends, we don't know, obviously. In addition to that, though, the fund, so third point investors have announced the exchange period has commenced. 
And this was part of their discount control mechanism effectively. So shareholders can convert their shares in Third Point into the master fund at a 7.5% discount. So that is now open and that will remain open until the 15th of November. It's worth noting though that the minimum tender value for any one shareholder is $10 million. So clearly it will suit some and not others. Yes, I'm afraid that will rule me out. But uh, what they've saved on being able to publish an open letter without having to put a stamp on it, they've more than made up for by incurring a lot of legal fees in this process. This all does seem a little bit Yabu sucks, does it not? But uh, it will be quite nice to get to an end of this saga. In the meantime, what's happened to the discount? Is it actually coming in? This is what the board says it's uh, hoping to achieve and the exchange is part of that process. Yeah, and obviously that, that is a key question. So just to put some context around it, over the previous 12 months, Third Point has traded on an average 16% discount. Obviously, there's a range over that time. So it's been as narrow as a 9% discount, as wide as a 24% discount. But at this moment in time, or certainly at the close of the markets on Thursday, it was at a 16.5% discount. So probably a little bit of work still to be done there. I guess both sides could claim they've made some progress uh at this point. Okay, so that one will run and run. You can be sure about that. Let's move on and talk quickly about Schroeder UK Public Private, the former Woodford Patient Capital Trust, uh, ticker SUPP. And they've done something with their holding in uh, Oxford Nanopore, which is, I think, their most valuable, has been their most valuable holding. What's the latest on that one? Yeah, that's right. Well, Oxford Nanopore actually IPO'd this week. So it had been kind of heralded. I think everyone was expecting to be a kind of Q3, Q4 IPO. That went ahead this week, floated on a a price of 425p per share, and actually on its first day of trading, closed up 44%. So with regards to Schroeder UK Public Private's holding in Oxford Nanopore, at the end of June, it represented not too far off 25% of the portfolio, so by some distance, the largest holding in the fund. Um, They've actually sold 10% of the stake. That was sold at the IPO price. There was a liquidity provided for uh, existing investors. So they raised £11 million as a result of that. But the remaining stake based on the IPO price was £99 million, so still a significant investment. So that remaining holding is restricted from resale for 180 days, and that's pretty standard when you have these IPO positions. But obviously, in theory at least, it should be a kicker to the fund's NAV. I guess it's fair to make the comment, uh, given all the other headlines and flack that's been flying around, that this was an investment that was originally made by Neil Woodford. When this trust was being set up and developed, it was one of his uh, early investments. If only been around to enjoy the, the benefits of that, but the shareholders in Schroeder, UK Public and Private are, are getting that benefit. Am I right about that? Yes, spot on. Yes, it, it does date back to um, Woodford Investment Management's tenure as the uh, portfolio managers. And it's worth noting as well that other houses have been involved. So Bailey Gifford have had a stake in this one as well in some of their funds. The other point worth noting, as I mentioned, it was 25% of the NAV at the end of June. The reason for that is actually Oxford Nanopore has done um, very, very well as, as a business. And, and that kind of makes sense given that they've now come to the market through a successful IPO. Uh, and they were involved in the pandemic and the fight against COVID-19 as well. And they got quite a lot of headlines for that. So, yes, a successful investment for Shreddy UK Public Private. And what about the impact in the market? I mean, we know that the trust has been trading at a big discount or did go to a very wide discount when all the troubles were at their peak. And it has been getting a little bit better. But uh, has this particular transaction had much impact or was it already uh, known about it, essentially? Well, obviously, we knew that they had the big hold in Oxford Nanopore. What we didn't know was the IPO price of Oxford Nanopore and, and you know, how it would fare thereafter. And obviously, it's still incredibly early days. But interestingly enough, the share price of Shredder UK Public Private hasn't reacted massively to the IPO. I mean, it started the week just north of 33p. And I've got it on my screen at the moment, about 35p. So it's up a couple of p on the week. So you could argue that uh, either the market's ignoring this or it already factored it in in terms of its valuation. But it's worth noting that Shredder UK Public Private remains on a discount to its NAV. That's a historic NAV as well. So we've got it on a kind of mid-teens level at the moment. Okay, so I won't ask you to explain exactly what Oxford Nanopore does. That might be (laughs) too much for the end of a long week. I'm not sure I could do it. But anyway, we'll move on and talk about some fundraising because the fundraising goes on. As uh, we've been saying for several weeks, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether this market uh, weakness or the more recent market weakness has any impact on the pace of fundraising. Too early to say that, obviously, particularly as most of the fundraising exercises are in the alternative asset space, which aren't directly affected necessarily by some of these Uh, other developments, though power prices are clearly one of them that is relevant. 
Let's kick off with Aberdeen Standard, European Logistics Income. I suppose this trust hasn't changed its name yet. What have they managed to do with their uh, latest issue? Well, um, they've had a very successful issue, basically. They were looking to raise around about £75 million. Um, actually, that was oversubscribed, and so they extended the size of the issue. So they raised £125 million. So about 150 million new shares are to be issued. That's at a price of 109p. And that represents a 3% premium to the NAV at the end of June. So one suspects they will be pretty happy with that result. As I mentioned, it was oversubscribed, so they had to go through a scaling back exercise. And they've got a pipeline of mid-box and urban logistic warehouses lined up. And that had a value of about 165 million euros. So uh, this will go some way in order to acquire that. And interesting enough, I mean, this is an issue raised by... uh some commentary that I read this week, but uh, the share price itself today, how has it reacted to the news of this oversubscription? I mean, the shares were issued 109p, and they've obviously come back in the last few weeks in anticipation of this issue, I suppose. So what's been the immediate market reaction today? So I've got them on the screen of a price of 111p, so in other words, 2p up on that issue price. And you know that puts them on a premium, clearly, uh, about 5% premium or so to their NAV. But uh, no, you're right. There has been some discussion about some of the pricing of these new issues and at what level is appropriate, because obviously what tends to happen is that the issue price is uh, disclosed. It's invariably at a discount to the kind of share price just ahead of that announcement. In other words, the share price in the short term comes down. Now, if there's a, a relatively rapid rebound after the money's raised, that's all well and good. But if, in fact, all you've done is capping the share price, you can understand how some shareholders get a little bit vexed by this. So the existing shareholders end up with a holding that is worth less than it was before the funding was done, effectively, uh, if the price doesn't recover to where it was before. Is, is that what you're saying? That's exactly right, yes. Okay, so let's move on and talk about another one, which is Digital 9 Infrastructure, DGI9, which has also done a placing, which was also oversubscribed, I think. It was, yeah. This is going to be a bit of a theme this week, to be honest. So they were looking to raise £200 million, and in fact, they ended up raising £275 million. So it's significantly oversubscribed. They have a, a, a kind of pipeline all lined up. The, the new shares are going to be issued at a price of 107 spot 5p. And actually, they began trading on Friday, so i.e. the 1st of October. But this is a you know genuinely interesting story. I mean, they only came to the market back in March. They raised £300 million through their IPO at that stage. They came back in June. They raised £175 million at that stage at a price of 105p per share. So with this new issue, this new placing, they've raised capital of £750 million for a company that's only been going about six or seven months. Yes, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And that actually compares pretty favourably to the largest ever IPOs. I think it's £800 million or so, wasn't it, that uh, is the most that's ever been raised in an IPO. So they've almost done that. And it's, it's been in two quick stages rather than in one go. But uh, that is pretty remarkable. Do you think this is there's any evidence out there that investors are chasing these new issues uh, too keenly, would you say? I mean, what you could say quite possibly is that clearly there is strong demand for these asset classes. And again, it's it's what we talked about before. It's the idea of offering when fully invested and up and running all the rest of it, but attractive levels of target yield and an asset class that should be uncorrelated to general markets. And one suspects that people are investing in these types of funds as, as the name was just alternative income type products. Uh, and possibly tells you what they what they regard in terms of more orthodox uh, sources of income, such as bonds at the moment. I think many people struggle to invest in that asset class. But in the sense that they're still investing on the promise, as it were, rather than the than the actuality. A lot of these new issues in, these, in this particular case, if you come to the market three or four months ago and then you say you're going to do this and then you come up with more very quickly thereafter. You're, you haven't had time to see the results of the first invested funds, have you? Yeah, no, it's a good point. So perhaps that just suggests the times that we're living in. I mean, the, the normal pattern would be, you know, a fund is up and running, you give them some capital, they get invested, they start paying those initial few dividends, and then they come back again and say, well, look, we've, we've kind of demonstrated this kind of proof of concept here. We wish to deploy additional capital, and you go from there. In this particular instance, as we said, it's six or seven months. They haven't actually, I think they might have paid one dividend, but it's a relatively small one to date. They're certainly, you know, still building a track record. But I think people clearly or investors clearly like 
the space. I think they believe it's something a little bit different. And I remember we discussed this at the time of its launch that you know infrastructure has been a subsector that's been in favour now for a number of years. But what we have seen in the last year or so is more and more specialist plays and digital nine would definitely kind of fit into that category. So I think the kind of the whole kind of social infrastructure, renewable energy infrastructure, I think people are very familiar with this and now they're happy to go and look for even more kind of specialist type plays in this area. And I think that's where digital nine comes in. So on that one, the issue was 107.5p and the price you can see on the screen at the moment, we are recording this, I should say, at Friday lunchtime, so this won't be the close of play. But the price you can see on the screen is what at the moment, roughly speaking? So the price I've got on the screen at the moment is 107 spot 4. So roughly in line with the issue of those new shares. Okay, well, that may be interesting too. Okay, so we'll move on to another one. Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, D-O-R-E, is the ticker. What's their funding report this week? Yeah, so they are looking to issue 24.5 million shares at a price of 102 spot 5p. They basically want to raise 25 million pounds. That represents a discount of about 2% or so to the closing share price ahead of the announcement and about a premium of 3% or so to their NAV. They've got a, a pipeline of assets, four opportunities that they wish to acquire, and obviously this will go some way into helping them to do that. The placing will close on the 13th of October, and we'll find out a couple of days thereafter how they've got on. But again, you know, Downing Renewables Infrastructure, it hasn't been around for too long. They IPO'd back in December last year when they raised £123 million. Uh, I also know that they've been saying that they're exploring options to optimise the existing capital structure, including the inception of a revolving credit facility. This is quite a common thing to do, but perhaps you could just very quickly explain to us, for those who aren't familiar with this, what, what a revolving credit facility is and what's its uh, value to a trust like this. Yeah, so it's basically a credit facility, a bank line. Invariably, some of the well-known banks are very happy to issue those kind of credit facilities and effectively it's a, it's a form of borrowing. So these uh, investment companies, um, the patterns being they've been quite happy to, to gear up to a particular level and it's a way of them avoiding any kind of cash drag. So the, the model invariably has been they will use the credit facility to make new investments and then when it gets up to a level where they think that's probably as far as we're happy to, to go with it, they will come to the market and raise additional capital and pay that credit line down. So this is a very common practice across the infrastructure space. And as I said, it avoids cash drag. In what way, though, can we describe it as revolving? What is revolving? Which part of the facility is revolving? For those who aren't familiar with these basic <laughs> finance terms. I think the way most revolving credit facilities work, it would be priced off LIBOR or where we were going to in terms of the kind of variable interest rate. And also we'll see different currencies in play as well. So um, for those people not necessarily investing in the UK markets, that can be an attractive feature. Okay, so we can move on and talk about uh, PRS REIT, PRSR, not surprisingly is the ticker there, which has also been in the fundraising business. It has indeed. They've announced that they were looking actually to raise £75 million. They didn't quite achieve that. They came in at £56 million under their placing. So they issued new shares at a placing price of 103p. And that was in line with their closing share price just ahead of the announcement and basically a 4% premium to their NAV at the end of June. So yes, again, they have a pipeline of new investments. So six sites with potential for 670 new homes. The PRS REIT is the new build family homes for the private rental market, uh, which I think we've discussed on previous occasions. So they came in a little under their target but those new shares will begin to trade on Monday, the 4th of October. Okay, and then we can move on to supermarket income REIT, ticker SUPR. What are supermarket income REIT doing in the funding stakes? So they're looking to raise around about £100 million. They're happy to issue some shares at a placing price of 115p per share. That's a 4% discount to their closing share price just ahead of the announcement and a 6.5% premium to their NAV at the end of June. So once again, the investment advisors identified a number of, as they put it, attractive acquisition opportunities. That's four assets with an aggregate value of about £180 million. So again, they're quite happy to deploy that kind of pipeline. And um, I mean, we, I think we talked a bit about supermarkets over the last year or so, but they also want to put a placing program in place for up to 450 million shares over the next 12 months. So this idea that they will look to issue shares with a degree of regularity. They last came to the market for raising new funds back in March, 
This year, they raised 153 million at that stage, and that was at a price of 106p. What is the price in the market for that one? Is that uh, come back down towards the issue price as well already, or is that uh, has been some other experience? Well, yeah, so I've got the, the closing price on this one of 116 spot 5p. That was at the close of Thursday. So that's still a little bit ahead of that placing price. Okay, well, this could be a theme that could develop over time. We're wishing to see how these issuing trusts perform in the next weeks as they run up to their completion of these fundraising exercises. Finally, we can talk about Tritax Big Box REIT BBOX. This has been around for some time now and uh, is very much into warehouses and big boxes, as its name suggests, uh, and has also been trading at a, a very significant premium most of the time. What's the fundraising news from them? Well, yet again, it's another significantly oversubscribed placing. Um, they raised gross proceeds of £300 million this week. Those shares were issued out at a price of 204p per share. That represented a 5% discount to the closing share price back in on the 29th of September. So quite a decent fundraising for Tritax Big Box. In fact, I think the last time they, they came to the market for New Capital was back in February 2019, uh, when they raised about 250 million pounds at that stage. But as you would imagine, um, they're quite excited, judging by their announcement in terms of the opportunities that they see. And obviously this gives them quite uh, considerable firepower to uh, make new acquisitions. What is the yield on that one? What potentially are shareholders getting if they come in at this particular price? Yeah, no, it's a good point. So um, I've got the yield on a historic basis of 3.1%. So that's lower than you will see for other commercial property funds. It's probably nearer to about 4 or 5% in most cases. Um, and it was one of the things that came out of our conference today. Jason Bagley, the manager of the Standard Life property company, was asked about the prospects for logistics. And he thinks as an asset class, as a subsector, the prospects remain good, but noted that the yields have contracted considerably uh, as a result of the valuation uplifts that we're seeing in that area. So it's expensive, basically, compared with other property areas. Indeed. Finally, in the fundraising section, let's talk about Gore Street Energy Storage. That's ticker GSF. What have they done this week? Well, yet again, it's another oversubscribed fundraising. They raised uh, just short of £74 million pounds, uh, for an issue at a price of 107p per share. Those new shares will begin to trade next week on Monday, the 4th of October, and they'll take the, the total number of shares in issue to about 345 million. So the net proceeds will be invested in a development pipeline of more than one gigawatt. And that includes an active pipeline across North America and Western Europe, of which 160 megawatts is currently under exclusivity. That's all the fundraising this week. I say all the fundraising. It's still a, a significant number of cases. But let's move on and talk about some results now. And we're going to kick off with a trust that I know you think has always has something interesting to say, and that is uh, Manchester and London, ticker MNL. They produced some annual results this time for the year to 31st of July. That's right. It was a more difficult period for Manchester and London. So the NAV total return was up just short of about 9%. Um, so very respectable in absolute terms, but behind their comparable index or benchmark index, which is the MSCI UK Investable Market Index, bit of a mouthful, but that was up 26%. So it's equivalent to the broader UK market. In share price terms, they're actually down. Share price total return was down about 9% as the rating moved from a 1% premium to 14% discount. But this is not an ordinary UK equities type fund. In fact, we've got it in the, in the global sector, I think you mentioned, um, and it has a very strong emphasis on technology. Uh, I mean, the kind of the mantra you'll find on their website, their fact sheet is, we believe in the increasing economic power of the machine in the two century long battle for supremacy between men and machine. So there we go. I think that kind of gives you a flavor of what they're excited about. Uh, but their underperformance was attributed to rotation from growth to value, uh, which saw big tech materially lag cyclical sectors and the impact of regulatory activity on Chinese technology companies. Uh, also, the sterling strength against the dollar acted as a headwind as well, and actually re reduced the NME down. I think they said about 6.4%. But essentially, the portfolio remains focused on large cap as they put it, intellectually property-rich companies listed in developed markets which are investing for growth. So if you've got their largest holdings, it's Microsoft, 18%, Amazon, 16%, Alphabet, 10%, and Alibaba, and Tencent, 8% and 7%, respectively, of their portfolio. Yes, yeah, so they certainly won't have been immune to what's been happening in China recently. 
And uh, having a portfolio that has 18% in Microsoft and uh, nearly 16% in Amazon, that's nearly a third of the trust is in those two big mega cap stocks. Uh, well, that's an interesting way to manage money. Obviously, not for everyone. Let's move on and talk about another very interesting specialist kind of trust, which is Aurora Investment Trust, ticker ARR. And they've had some interim results for the six months to 30th of June this time. And I noticed their NAV total return was almost identical to that of Manchester in London. Indeed, yes, up 8.5%. Um, and actually, that represented an underperformance as well, because the fuel share was up 11.1% in that time. Though the share price total return was, was better, actually, um, up 12.3%. So in other words, they outperformed in share price terms. It's a very focused portfolio. There's a contrarian value approach. It's Phoenix Asset Management, led by Gary Channon. And some of the strong performers in the period included Dignity, which is up 35% in share price terms. Fraser's, I think that counted for about half the NAV increase. And Lloyd, so the only kind of key holding that uh, didn't do particularly well for them was Hornby. But uh, it's a really interesting fund, this one. There wasn't a lot of investment activity, but what they did do, actually following the period end, so in July, they put a hedge in place. And they've been talking about this for some time. It was with the aim to negate against potential negative equity market movements in response to higher interest rates as a result of increasing inflation. So basically, they got involved in some short selling sterling futures. They took a bet against sterling, which given what we've seen in the last week or so, has probably done them okay. In addition to that, on the 28th of September, so very recently, shareholders in the investment trust have approved the fund's participation in the listing of the Castlenow Group. And I think this is one we talked about a week or two ago. And the idea is that they're going to exchange shares in Dignity, Hornby and Phoenix, Stanley Gibbons, the shares in the Castlenow Group. Yes, that's another issue. It couldn't be more different, the uh, portfolios between Manchester and London and Aurora. It's interesting to see how that Castle Now group share price develops when it's listed. That will be one to watch. So let's move on and talk about Crystal Amber Fund. CRS is the ticker here. They've also had something to say on the results front. So they had their annual results out for the year to the end of June. In that time, their NAV total return was up 41%. For those unfamiliar with Crystal Amber, it's an activist investment approach, a highly concentrated portfolio. Richard Bernstein has been responsible for this one for a number of years. So uh, key contributors in the period included Delarue, GI Dynamics and Equals Group. And they also had a number of exits as well following the completion of activist strategy. But the thing to watch for this one is that they face a continuation vote in November, 22nd November, to be more precise, at the AGM. And the larger shareholder may vote against the continuation that's uh, been put in the public domain. And as a result of that, the manager has apparently been positioning holdings to appeal to buyers, given that uh, they might not make it through their continuation vote. Right. Well, that implies that they haven't been positioning their holders to appeal to buyers in the past. So what's happened to the share price? Is the market thinking that it is going to uh, disappear? Well, it's still trading on quite a big discount, actually. So I've got it on about a 22% discount at the moment. I mean, it has, as mentioned, it's had a good run over the last year or so. I mean, share price is up 51% in the last 12 months. So in share price terms, in recent times, it has done well, but clearly still trading on a big discount. Okay, we can now talk about Dunedin Income Growth. That's D-I-G is the ticker, not to be confused with D-I-G-S, DIGS, which is the trust that I'm afraid we're going to be losing shortly. Uh, they've had some half-year results. What do they look like? Yep, so these were results for six months to the end of June. In that time, their NAV total return was up 11.1%. That was a slight underperformance compared with the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share was up 126 The revenue return, actually, um, so we're seeing this a lot with these kind of equity income type names, uh, has kind of moved on. So the revenue return came in at 7.35p. That was up from 6.14p in the equivalent six-month period in 2020. And that's obviously reflecting the rebound in dividend payments. They've paid a dividend of 3p and actually declared another dividend of 3p. So that's in line with the level for 2020. But I think the, the interesting aspect of this particular story is that shareholders have basically given them permission to invest on a sustainable and responsible basis. So what does that mean? Well, they've excluded tobacco and weapons. So they did have a, a position in uh, British American Tobacco, which is quite a commonly held stock in a lot of UK equity income uh, portfolios. That's been sold. And also they're looking very closely at oil and gas names. And basically, 
if those particular companies don't have a meaningful weighting in renewables or natural gas, uh, then they'll be minded to sell. So as mentioned, British American Tobacco has been sold, BHP, Billiton's gone and National Grid. So the portfolio has been repositioned as a result of shareholder approval for that change in strategy. And does the market like this uh, change in strategy? I mean, we've seen one or two cases where trusts that have tried to go in this direction have not been so well received. How has the market reacted to this one? And, and also, I guess we should ask what's happened to the dividend yield on this one, because presumably it must be coming down a little bit if they've sold BATS and some of those other big dividend pairs that you were just mentioning. Yeah, and, and it's a good point. I mean, just in terms of the rating of Dunedin Income Growth, I mean, it's trading on a, on a premium rating. I've got it on my screen about 2% premium or so at the moment, and that compares with a, a small average discount over the previous 12 months, about uh, 3 or 4%. So in other words, it has been positively re-rated. So, um, you know, could we take that as a, as a positive sign? I'm sure they would argue that it is. Well, in terms of the yield, on a historic basis, it's a 3.9% yield. And my recollection is when they were talking about this change of approach, there was obviously a lot of focus on the yield. And I think one of the things they did emphasize is that their ability to invest up to 20% of the portfolio overseas gave them quite a few options in terms of building out those high yielding names that you can find, not just in Europe, but uh, elsewhere. So I think that's um, a positive part of the story. Yes. I mean, the revenue return you mentioned of 7.35p looks like it would be ahead of the dividend for that period. So to that extent, it's been covered. But they made this reference to uh, buoyant conditions for option writing. Writing options is another way you can attempt to uh, either sustain or increase your yield. Is, Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. So there are a number of investment trusts that pursue that policy. I mean, there's obviously no such thing as a free lunch. So you get the, the, the premiums, you get the additional income by uh, writing options, but invariably it often means you're kind of capping the upside on the holdings that you have potentially or less common, but you may be forced to buy things you know, when, the, when the, uh, the share price is sliding down. So most investment trust companies that have that option writing strategy, it's very carefully controlled. It's the kind of smaller element of the income, if that makes sense. So it's invariably driven by the dividend, the underlying dividend growth, and that's the kind of element on top. But it's something that I think shareholders need to be aware of if the, if the company is doing that, because uh, as you say, no, there are no free lunches in investment, sad to relate. Let's move on and talk about Merchants Trust, ticker MRCH, which has also had interim results for the six months to the 31st of July in this case. That's right. And in which time uh, they performed very strongly, actually. The NAV was up just short of 20%. That compared to a rise of 12.6% for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, it was even stronger, actually up 21.5%. And this investment trust has traded on a a premium. Certainly during that period, they've issued 3.7 million shares. Uh, And also, again, to the point we're making earlier, the revenue earnings per share have actually seen a really good uplift. So they're up 49% year on year. So they came in at 13.3p per share, although it it was noted that um, that's still behind the, the 2019 level. But the performance was a result of stock selection. Uh, so a number of names did very well for Simon Gurgle and the investment team in this period. So S3, St. James's Place, Man Group, Barclays, whereas detractors including SSE, Vodafone, Stock Spirits and Diversified Energy. It's also worth noting that gearing was positive and, and it stood at 14% at the end of July. Yes, yeah, so while we're on the subject of UK equity income, I should uh, perhaps say, as I did last week, that for those of you who are subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, I would have recorded quite an in-depth interview with Hugh Yarrow, who manages the Everload Income Fund, which is another UK equity income fund, but it's not an investment trust. It's an open-ended fund, but it's one that has a very good record. If you're looking for things to compare how some of these big UK equity income trusts are performing and what they're saying about the world, that will be a good one to listen to, if I may be so bold as to suggest that. The yield on merchants, where is that at the moment? That's uh, looking quite healthy, I think, is it not? Absolutely, yeah. So it's yielding about 5% on a historic basis at the moment. So that's higher than um, a number of the names in that UK equity income peer group. So the weighted average yield is probably about 4% or so. And there's clearly a range. Uh, I mean, you've got names such as Finsbury Growth and Income, which is probably at the low end of that spectrum, about 2% or so. Troy Income Growth, about 2.6%. And then Merchants is probably at the other end. Um, I mean, it's worth Noting City of London Investment Trust as well. I think we talked about that one last week and its results. That's also yielding 5% currently. And then finally for the UK, we're going to look at the Strategic Equity Capital, ticker SEC, 
they've produced some numbers for the uh, the full year to the 30th of June in their case. That's right, yeah. And the NAV total return was at 46.8% in that time, which sounds good, but actually represented an underperformance. So uh, their benchmark index was up 65.2%. Uh, in share price terms, actually, they nearly got to the benchmark level. They were up just short of 60% as so the discount narrowed from 18% to about 11%. So strategic equity capital, it's been run by Ken Wooten of Gresham House since September last year. So he took over during this period uh, of the reports, but it's quite a concentrated portfolio. They take almost a kind of private equity type mindset to investing in public markets. That's the kind of the big idea. So the companies that they made the points that underperformance is a result of cash drag and also a lack of cyclical exposure during that market recovery in November and December. Am I right in thinking that there has been some pressure from shareholders to do something about the discount on this one? We had that instance uh, early in the year when two shareholders in particular, two large shareholders, tried to requisition the board. Uh, I think that's all gone a bit quiet now. I mean, we have seen the discount narrowing. We've got it in about a 13 14% level at the moment. That compares with 16% over the previous 12 months. So it's still wider than the UK small cap peer group, uh, but it's narrower than it has been over the previous 12 months. Yes, and you'd think that uh, it will be quite difficult to muster support from shareholders after getting some results like that, whether or not it's uh, underperformance or not. It, uh, it's certainly been uh, a good year for them anyway. I dare say it was follows a, a not-so-good year the year before, as I recall. Uh, moving overseas now, we've got a couple of Indian equity investment trusts to mention. Obviously, India has been quite badly affected by the second phases of the pandemic. But uh, tell us about how the... Uh, Ashoka India Equity Investment Trust, ticker AIE, has been performing in the period to 30th of June. They performed very well, actually. Their NAV total return was up 53% in that 12-month period. Uh, I mean, that compared to a rise of 45% for the benchmarks. In other words, it outperformed. The share price return was even stronger, up 65%, as the rating moved from a 5% discount to a 2% premium. And our performance was uh, a result of stock selection, so it's a very concentrated portfolio of Indian equities. Uh, it's managed by White Oak, a specialist Mumbai-based boutique. Prashant Kemker, I think it's the gentleman there, who's an ex-Goldman's guy, who's been running that uh, since its launch. Um, but clearly a strong set of results, and it's allowed them to issue some new shares as well, about 18 million 1.8, 18 million new shares were issued at a premium during that period. The other thing to note as well is that they're not paid an annual management fee, as most investment trusts would expect. Instead, they're paid on a performance basis. And actually, a £7.9 million performance fee has been paid through newly issued shares as a result of that strong period of performance. And 50% of those shares is locked in for a three-year period. So if we just compare that £7.9 million in newly issued share to the overall market capitalization of the trust, what kind of payday have they actually had in uh if one puts that into uh, percentage terms of the uh, the overall market capitalization, Well, it's always a challenge on a Friday afternoon to do some mental maths. But what I can tell you is they've got a market cap of about £160, £61 million. Pounds. So let's round that up nicely. So it's £8 million. So I think, you're going to correct me now when I get this wrong, but I think that feels like a 5%. I think it looks like exactly 5% if we take, <laughs> if we take 8 million, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Very good. Well, that's good. It's been a long week for you, I have to say, so uh, <laughs> I don't blame you at all. Anyway, having survived that tricky moment, let's move on and talk about India Capital Growth, ticker IGCE, which I think has been going on slightly longer than uh, Ashoka. They've had some interim results, so they're not directly comparable for the third period of 30th of June. No, that's right. It's a six-month period, and which time they also outperformed, actually. Their NAV per share was up 25%. It outperformed the BSE mid-cap total return index by about 3% or so. And I think, as the benchmark would suggest, that again, this is a slightly specialist Indian play. It's much more uh, biased to mid-cap companies. So three sectors delivered the majority of the outperformance, and that was materials, healthcare, and consumer discretionary, though IT services also contributed pretty positively as well. It's worth noting that the share price was up nearly 32% as the discount narrowed from 14% to about 12% or so. Yes, and I think it's also fair to say that the share price performance over the last 12 months last year is actually slightly better than that of Ashoka. So uh, they are doing well, and uh, the Indian sector generally has uh, 
Well, tell us about the Indian sector. I think there's, there's four main trusts in it, but the, uh, the kind of discount range you're seeing is quite marked, I think. Yeah, no, that's right. And actually, I'll, I'll go through the discounts in a minute, but the, the share price performance of all these funds has been pretty impressive. So if you look over 12 months, and arguably we should look longer, but I just want to give the impression of how they've bounced quite nicely. But over the last 12 months, the best performer has been India Capital Growth, up 79% in share price terms, and followed by Ashoka India Equity, up 61%, Aberdeen New India in at 52%, and JP Morgan India up 45%. So all in absolute returns, um, you know, strong returns. But yes, the discounts uh, do vary. So if you look at the JP Morgan Fund, that's on about a 16% discount at the moment. Aberdeen New India on a 12% discount. Uh, India Capital Growth, an 8% discount, and Ashoka India Equity trading around NAV at the moment. Right, so there's plenty of choice there. And uh, I think it's also fair to say that Indian equities have been very volatile and that the five-year return for uh, India Capital Growth is not far different from the one-year return, so which tells you that it's been very much an up-and-down ride over the period. Let's move on and talk about North American Income Trust, ticker NAIT, logically enough. This trust has had... Uh, some interim results for the six months to the 31st of July. That's right, in which time their NAV total return was up just short of 20%. That competitive rise just short of 18% for the Russell 1000 value index. In other words, they outperformed. Share price total return came in about 19%. So they're they're trading on a bit of a discount. So they bought some shares back in the period, um, probably worth about £3.7 million or so. But in terms of that outperformance, that reflected a positioning in the technology sector, as well as some stock selection in communication services and consumer staples. Conversely, being underweight, healthcare and some of their stock selection in energy and materials detracted. But uh, as the name would suggest, the revenue is a kind of key part of the story. And certainly the equity holdings in the portfolio generated revenue just short of £8 million. And that was just slightly down the comparable period in 2020. But total dividends of 3.8p were declared or paid in the period. And a third dividend of 2.5p is expected with a final dividend for the year acting as a balancing figure. It's worth noting that this is part of the Aberdeen stable. So Rondano, who's based out in America, is responsible for this one. And let's move on to JP Morgan Emerging Markets, ticker JPM, who've also had some results out this week. And a strong set of results, actually. The NAV total return was up just short of 33%. That compared to a rise of 26% for the benchmark. In share price terms, it was even better, actually. Share price total return up 36.2% as the discount narrowed um, from about 9% into about a 6% rating. So the outperformance was a result of stock selection and certainly um, Austin Foray, the manager, very long, long-standing manager of this one, has a very strong uh, long-term track record and uh, places a high emphasis on the ability to pick good stocks in emerging markets. So now we can uh, move on and talk about some specialist trust results. And we're going to start with uh, Standard Life Private Equity, ticker SLPO. They've had a quarterly update for the three months They've only got as far as 30th of June with their quarterly updates. But uh, what do they say there about the NAV at that point? Yeah, it was a strong uplift over that three-month period, actually. And this is obviously in line with what we've seen for other listed private equity names. The NAV was up just short of uh, 11%. That compared to a rise of 5.5% for the FTSE All Show over the same period. And in fact, in total return terms, because they pay an enhanced dividend as well, the NAV total return was up 11.7%. So where's that come from? Well, some of it was from realised gains and income. That came in about 3.6% of the NAV were actually unrealised gains in local currency, came in at 7.6% of the NAV. So there's quite a bit of unrealised gains coming through. But all the underlying portfolio has now been revalued at the end of June. And this is a fund of private equity funds. So there's always a bit of a time lag before the numbers come through. Um, and they're also seeing on a bit of cash as well. Cash was about 66 million at the 15th of September, where all outstanding commitments um, stood just over 600 million pounds. Okay, now we can talk about uh, UK commercial property REIT, UKCM is the ticker. They've had some interim results for the three months to 30th of June. And uh, I guess they've been going to report some steady progress, like most of the commercial property trusts valuations edging back up again. What are, what's the story there? Yeah, I think that's right, actually. The NAV total return in that six-month period is up about 6%. Share price terms was actually better. The share price total return up 13.4%. 
And that was a reflection of the fact that discount narrowed from 20% to 15%. The underlying portfolio, the total return, it was about 6.5%. And that represented an outperformance of its benchmark, which was up 5.5%. And that was really, again, the industrial portfolio within the fund's wider portfolio that performed quite strongly. But there's been a bit of uh, investment activity. Um, They've made a new purchase in some student accommodation in Edinburgh, uh, possibly not far from where I am at the moment. Um, and ultimately, since the period end, they've acquired Trafford Retail Park for £33 million. But it's a sizable fund, this one. The portfolio is valued at £1.2 billion. It's also worth noting that the rent collection for the third quarter is standing at about 92%, or certainly was at the end of August. And ongoing negotiations with tenants have been able, unable to pay to date. But obviously, the dividend is an important part of the story, and the dividend um, is kind of being marched back up. So there was a 40% increase in the quarterly dividend for the first two quarters of this year, and a further top-up day of dividend was paid in May, and that was in respect of last year. But it's one of the less geared property plays at just 2% at the end of June. So if I remember rightly, this means that the share price and the NEV of this uh, particular trust has at one point just about got back to where it was before the pandemic struck. But it's yet to uh, uh, break out of that. And it's been a little bit weaker in uh, in the last uh, week or so. Is that right? I've got the share price or something at the close of Thursday at 73.5p. And it's still on quite a wide discount. So it's on about an 18% discount to its NAV. And, and probably traded on average in the last 12 months about 15% or so. So it's certainly relatively wide. It's worth noting as well that it's yield on a historic basis is standing at 3.4%. So again, it's slightly on the lower side compared with its wider peer group. Okay, so moving on with specialist trusts, we come on to Aquila European Renewables Income Fund. I always get its name wrong. Uh, Apologies to them. Ticker AERS. They've had interim results for the six months to 30th of June as well. Indeed they have, and their NAV total return was 1.9%. Their actually share price was a bit better. Total return 6.6%. So they paid two and a half cents in dividends, and that was in line with target, and that was 1.1 times covered. But basically, the fund has deployed or committed a total of 327 million euros. The portfolio now consists of 10 investments, and it's generating capacity of 332 megawatts. They've also deleveraged a little bit as well. So their debt or total debt at the moment represents about 25% of gross asset value. And then moving on again, we can look at uh, Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, ticker ORIT, same period for their results. How did they do in comparison? Yeah, well, their NAV was actually down uh, 1% in the period, and that was a result of um, updated tax, inflation, and um, foreign exchange assumptions. Uh, though they paid two quarterly dividends of 1.25p um, each, uh, and that's in line with their 5p per share target for their 2021 financial year. But at the end of June, their portfolio consisted of 24 assets across three countries, two technologies, and they have a total capacity of 315 megawatts. So finally, we can move on and talk about something that keeps on coming up at the end of our little podcast, and that is music royalties. And this time we've been hearing from uh, Round Hill Music Royalty, ticker RHM, and they've had some interim results. uh, And also, uh, perhaps not unsurprisingly, they've also been making acquisitions. That's right. So they had results from the date of their incorporation to the 30th of June. So this is the first set of results that we've had from them. The NAV total return since inception is positive. It's up 10%. By the end of June, they'd invested $342 million in 38 catalogues. Uh, and they'd also made a 29% investment in RH Carling Holdings, which gives them exposure to a number of other properties. The valuation was increased by just short of $32 million to $373.5 million. And the portfolio includes about 118,000 songs and 750 master recordings. Um, I think one of the things that they do draw out, and I suspect it is a differentiator, is that 75% of the portfolio is older than 20 years. So I think this is one way that they are trying to say they're different to other funds or entities, hypnosis being the obvious one, that they have a more mature portfolio. And in fact, this week, we learned that they'd acquired 100% of the master royalty income of 532 songs by American R&B group, The OJs, who is a band, I've got to be honest, hasn't cropped up on my playlist. I suspect it's one of your favourites, Jonathan, but um, this is a band that's been going 63 years. So obviously they produced a lot of songs during that time. 
Yeah, I can remember them from when I was in uh, in shorts uh, many years ago. In the context, I should mention, uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this. You might have seen this, uh, Simon, knowing your keen interest in these things. You might have seen that uh, Rolling Stone magazine, which used to be quite a trendy magazine back in the day, <laughs> but perhaps is rather mainstream now, updated its list of the 500 greatest singles ever released. And I'm going to give you a chance to name me one of the top five artists. I'm not going to ask you to name me the song. And I know that you haven't been prepped on this one, so this is a bit of a tricky one. And uh, I'm going to ask you to see if you can by guess the name of the artist, who, any artist which is in the top five of the Rolling Stones list of 500 greatest singles. Well, I mean, you'd have to imagine the Beatles would be in the top five. You'd have to imagine that. Or, you know, Elvis Presley, the Beatles, Rolling Stones. I mean, it's, it's your record collection, basically, Jonathan, isn't it? Well, in fact, it's not. It's been put together, I think, by a, a panel of people who are connected to Rolling Stone who are, say, somewhat younger than I am. Uh, but the list is very interesting. I'll tell you who, who's there. I mean, the Beach Boys are number 11. You would have heard of them. But um, I don't know whether you're familiar with Outcasts' Hey Ya, which is at number 10, for example. And the Beatles only come in at number 7. So that's uh, somewhat a surprise. And that's for Strawberry Fields Forever, which I'm not sure would be everybody's uh, first choice of the best Beatles track. But in the top five, I can tell you there's a Nirvana, Bob Dylan, like a Rolling Stone, bit of name recognition there, I guess, Sam Cooke, great singer Sam Cooke, Public Enemy, Fight the Power. I don't think I'm familiar with that one. <laughs> and number one <laughs> is Aretha Franklin with Respect, which uh, was also written by Otis Redding. Well, you know, you pay the money, you take your choice. But I think it's something that will be very interesting to look at uh, if we're trying to compare these two music royalty trusts, Hypnosis and Round Hill. Who's got the most number of top 10 or top 50 uh, tracks, according to Rolling Stone? I don't think it's the same as the tracks that are uh, actually the best sellers. So it's a uh, it's very much a kind of eccentric thing you might want to debate over Christmas or something. But anyway, that's the kind of trivia we have to finish with. <laughs> <laughs> How are the uh, music royalty trusts trading at the moment? I mean, there was some questions about the way that uh, hypnosis in particular was uh, producing its numbers and so on. Has that any had any material impact on the share price or has it just been pretty rock steady? Rock yes. steady. I note that. Yeah. Well, yeah. On fire. Um, hypnosis songs fund. I've got it on about a three percent premium to NAV at the moment, and it's probably going for a little bit of a quieter period. To be perfectly honest, similarly, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund. I've got it on about a one percent discount, so that's probably a little bit of a weaker rating than we're used to seeing on that particular fund. And obviously, it is the smaller of the two. But um, you know, they keep buying new catalogs, so we keep talking about them. Indeed, and the yields at the moment are what. So Hypnosis uh, has got a yield of 4.3% uh, and Roundhill, to be fair, are still kind of ramping up. So they're still building their, their dividend track record. So an interesting comparison in between that and, say, supermarket income read, uh, which is the better buy at the moment. I'll leave that one with you while you uh, rock on in Edinburgh, uh, Simon. I shall look forward <laughs> to talking to you again next week when uh, you'll have come back um, south of Hadrian's Wall, I think. Indeed, if they let me through the border. So that's it for this week and uh, look forward to speaking to everybody again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.